0: Chapter Seven, Part One of *The House of the Whispering Pines* by Anna Katharine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Carolyn. Clifton accepts my case, Part One. This hand of mine is yet a maiden and an innocent hand, not painted with the crimson spots of blood. Within this bosom, never entered yet the dreadful motion of a murderous thought king john my first thought when i could think at all was this she has some feeling then her terror and remorse have maddened her i can dwell upon her image with pity the next will they find her wet clothes and discover that she was out last night the latter possibility troubled me my mind was the seat of strange contradictions as the day advanced and i began to realize that i elwood ranelagh easy-going man of the world but with traditions of respectable living on both sides of my house and a list of friends of which any man might be proud was in a place of detention on the awful charge of murder i found that my keenest torment arose from the fact that i was shut off from the instant knowledge of what was going on in the house where all my thoughts my fears and i shall say it latent hopes were centred to know carmel ill and not to know how ill to feel the threatening arm of the law hovering constantly over her head and neither to know the instant of its fall nor be given the least opportunity to divert it to realize that some small inadvertence on her part some trivial but incriminating object left about some heedless murmur or burst of unconscious frenzy might precipitate her doom and i remain powerless bearing my share of suspicion in ignominy it is true but not the chief share if matters befell as i have suggested which they were liable to do at any hour nay at any minute my examination before the magistrate held one element of comfort nothing in its whole tenor went to show that as yet she was in the least suspected of any participation in my so-called crime but the knowledge which came later of how the police first learned of trouble at the club-house did not add to this sense of relief whatever satisfaction it gave my curiosity A cry of distress had come to them over the telephone, a wild cry in a woman's choked and tremulous voice, "'Help at the whispering pines! Help!' That was all, or all they revealed to me. In their endeavour to find out whether or not I was present when this call was made, I learned the nature of their own suspicions." they believed that adelaide in some moment of prevision had managed to reach the telephone and sent out this message but what did i believe what could i believe all the incidents of the deadly struggle which must have preceded the fatal culminating act were mysteries which my mind refused to penetrate after hours of torturing uncertainty and an evening which was the miserable precursor of a still more miserable night I decided to drop conjecture and await the enlightenment which must come with the morrow. It was, therefore, in a condition of mingled dread and expectation, that I opened the paper which was brought to me the next morning. Of the shock which it gave me to see my own name blotting the page with suggestions of hideous crime, I will not speak, but pass at once to the few gleams of added knowledge I was able to gather from these abominable columns arthur the good-for-nothing brother had returned from his wild carouse and had taken affairs in charge with something like spirit and a decent show of repentance for his own shortcomings and the mad taste for liquor which had led him away from home that night carmel was still ill and likely to be so for many days to come her case was diagnosed as one of brain fever and of a most dangerous type Doctors and nurses were busy at her bedside, and little hope was held out of her being able to tell soon, if ever, what she knew of her sister's departure from the house on that fatal evening. That her testimony on this point would be invaluable was self-evident, for proofs were plenty of her having haunted her sister's rooms all evening, in a condition of more or less delirium. She was alone in the house, and this may have added to her anxieties, all of the servants having gone to the policeman's ball. It was on their return in the early morning hours that she had been discovered lying ill and injured before her sister's fireplace. One fact was mentioned which set me thinking. The keys of the club-house had been found lying on the table in the side hall of the Cumberland mansion. The keys which I have already mentioned as missing from my pocket— An alarming discovery, which might have acted as a clue to the suspicious, I feared, if their presence there had not been explained by the waitress, who had cleared the table after dinner. Coming upon these keys lying on the floor besides one of the chairs, she had carried them out into the hall, and laid them where they would be more readily seen. She had not recognized the keys, but had taken it for granted that they belonged to Mr. Rannelly, who had dined at the house that night they were my keys and i have already related how i came to drop them on the floor had they but stayed there adelaide or was it carmel might not have seen them and been led by some strange if not tragic purpose incomprehensible to us now and possibly never to find full explanation to enter the secret and forsaken spot where i later found them the one dead the other fleeing in frenzy but not in such a thoughtless frenzy as to forget these keys, or to fail to lock the clubhouse door behind her. That she, on her return home, should have had sufficient presence of mind to toss these keys down in the same place from which she or her sister had taken them, argued well for her clear-headedness up to that moment. The fever must have come on later, a fever which, with my knowledge of what had occurred at the Whispering Pines, seemed the only natural outcome of this situation. The next paragraph detailed a fact startling enough to rouse my deepest interest. Zadok Brown, the Cumberland's coachman, declared that Arthur's cutter, and what he called the grey mare, had been out that night." They were both in place when he returned to the stable towards early morning, but the signs were unmistakable that both had been out in the snow since he left the stable at about nine. He had locked the stable door at that time, but the key always hung in the kitchen where anyone could get it. This was on account of Arthur, who, if he wanted to go out late, sometimes harnessed a horse himself. Zadok judged that he had done so this night, though how the horse happened to be back in her stall and no mr arthur in the house it would take wiser heads than his to explain but he was sure the mare had been out there was some comment made on this because arthur had denied using his cutter that night he declared instead that he had gone out on foot and designated the coachman's tail as all bush. i was not the only one who had a dropped too much down was the dogged assertion with which he met all questions on this subject. I wouldn't give a snap of my finger for Sadok's opinion on any subject after five hours of dancing and the necessary drinks. There were no signs of the mayor having been out when I got home. As this was about noon the next day, his opinion on this point could not be said to count for much. As for myself, I felt inclined to believe that the mayor had been out, that one or both of the women had harnessed him and that it was by these means that they had reached the whispering pines the night was too cold a storm too imminent for them to have contemplated so long a walk on a road so remote as that leading to the club-house arthur was athletic but adelaide was far from strong and never addicted to walking under the most favourable conditions of all the mysteries surrounding her dead presence in the club-house the one which from the first had struck me as the most inexplicable was the manner of her reaching there now i could understand both that fact and how carmel had succeeded in returning in safety to her home she had ridden both ways a theory which likewise explained how she came to wear a man's derby and possibly a man's overcoat with her skirts covered by a bearskin she would present a very fair figure of a man to any one who chanced to pass her this was desirable in her case a man and woman driving at a late hour through the city streets would attract little if any attention while two women might having no wish to attract attention they had resorted to subterfuge or had, it was not like adelaide to do so she was always perfectly open both in manner and speech. These were my deductions drawn from my own knowledge. Would others who had not my knowledge be in any wise influenced to draw the same? Would the fact that the mayor had been out during those mysterious hours when everybody had appeared to be absent from the house, saving the one young girl whom they afterwards found stark, staring mad with delirium, serve to awaken suspicion of her close and personal connection with this crime? There was nothing in this reporter's article to show that such an idea had dawned upon his mind, but the police are not readily hoodwinked, and I dreaded the result of their inquiries, if they chose to follow this undoubted clue. Yet, if they let this point slip, where should I be? Human nature is human all the way through, and I could not help having moments when I asked myself if this young girl were worth the sacrifice I contemplated making for her. She was lovely to look at, amiable, and of womanly promise, save at those rare and poignant moments when passion would seize her, in a gust which drove everything before it. But were any of these considerations sufficient to justify me in letting my whole manhood slip for the sake of one who, whatever the provocation, had used the strength of her hands against the sister who had been as a mother to her for so many years? that she had had provocation i did not doubt adelaide for all her virtues was not an easy person to deal with upright and perfectly sincere herself she had no sympathy with or a commiseration for any lack of principle or any display of selfishness in others a little cold a little reserved a little lacking in spontaneity, though always correct and always generous in her gifts and open in her acts her whole nature would rise at any evidence of meanness or ingratitude and though she said little you would feel her disapprobation through and through she would even change physically naturally pallid and of small inconspicuous features her eyes on these occasions would so flame and her whole figure so dilate that she looked like another woman I have seen her brother, six feet in height and weighty for his years, cringe under her few quiet words at these times till she absolutely seemed the taller of the two. It was only in these moments she was handsome, and had I loved her I should probably have admired this passionate purity, this intolerance of all that was small or selfish or unworthy of a good woman's esteem but not loving her i had merely cherished a wholesome fear of her displeasure and could quite comprehend what a full display of anger on her part might call up in her sensitive already deeply suffering sister the scathing arraignment the unbearable taunt well well it was all dream-work but i had time to dream and opportunity for little else and pictures which till now I had sedulously kept in the background of my imagination, would come to the front as I harped on this topic, and weighed in my disturbed mind the following question. Should I continue the course which I had instinctively taken, out of a natural sense of chivalry, or face my calumniators with the truth, and leave my cause and hers to the justice of men, rather than to the slow but righteous workings of providence? I struggled with the dilemma for hours, the more so that I did not stand alone in the world. I had relatives and I had friends, some of whom had come to see me and gone away deeply grieved at my reticence. I was swayed, too, by another consideration. I had deeply loved my mother. She was dead, but I had her honor to think of. Should it be said she had a murderer for her son— In the height of my inner conflict I had almost cried aloud the fierce denial which would arise at this thought. But ere the word could leave my lips, such a vision rose before me of a bewildering young face, with wonderful eyes and a smile too innocent for guile and too loving for hypocrisy, that I forgot my late antagonistic feelings, forgot the claims of my dear dead mother, and even those of my own future. Such passion and such devotion merited consideration from the man who had called them forth. I would not slight the claims of my dead mother, but I would give this young girl a chance for her life. Let others ferret out the fact that she had visited the clubhouse with her sister. I would not proclaim it. It was enough for me to proclaim my innocence, and that I would do to the last.' I was in this frame of mind when Charles Clifton called and was allowed to see me. I had sent for him in one of my discouraged moods. He was my friend, but he was also my legal adviser, and it was as such I had summoned him, and it was as such he had now come. Cordial as our relations had been, though he was hardly one of my ilk, I noticed no instinctive outstretching of his hand, and so did not reach out mine. Appearances had been too strong against me for any such spontaneous outburst from even my best friends. I realized that to expect otherwise from him or from any other man would be to play the fool, and this was no time for folly. The day for that was past. I was the first to speak. You see me where you have never thought to see a friend of yours. But we won't go into that. The police have good reasons for what they have done, and I presume feel justified in my commitment. Notwithstanding, I am an innocent man, so far as the attack made upon Miss Cumberland goes. I had no hand in her murder, if murder it is found out to be. My story which you have read in the papers, and which I felt forced to give out, possibly to my own shame, and that of another whom I would fain have saved— It is an absolutely true one. I did not arrive at the Whispering Pines until after Miss Cumberland was dead. To this I am ready to swear, and it is upon this fact you must rely, in any defence you might hereafter be called upon to make in my regard. He listened as a lawyer would be apt to listen to such statements from the man who had summoned him to his aid. But I saw that I had made no impression on his convictions.' He regarded me as a guilty man, and, what was more to the point, no doubt, as one for whom no plea could be made or any rational defence undertaken. "'You don't believe me,' I went on, still without any great bitterness. I am not surprised at it, after what the man-clerk has said of seeing me with my hands on her throat. Any man, friend or not, would take me for a villain after that. But, Charles—' to you i will confess what cowardice kept me from owning to dr perry at the proper possibly at the only proper moment that i did this out of a wild desire to see if those marks were really the marks of strangling fingers i could not believe that she had been so killed and led away by my doubts i leaned over her and you shall believe me you must i insisted as i perceived his hard gaze remain unsoftened "'I don't ask it of the rest of the world. I hardly expect anyone to give me credit for good impulses, or even for speaking the plain truth, after the discovery which has been made of my treacherous attitude towards these two virtuous and devoted women. But you, if you are to act as my counsel, must take this denial from me as gospel truth.' "'I may disappoint you in other ways. I may try you and often make you regret that you undertook my case, but on this fact you may safely pin your faith. She was dead before I touched her. Had the police spy, whose testimony is likely to hang me, climbed the tree a moment sooner than he did, you would have seen that. Are you ready to take my case?' Clifton is a fair fellow, and I knew if he once accepted the fact I thus urged upon him, he would work for me with all the skill and ability my desperate situation demanded. I, therefore, watched him with great anxiety for the least change in the constrained attitude and fixed, unpromising gaze with which he had listened to me, and was conscious of a great leap of heart, as the set expression of his features relaxed, and he responded almost warmly, I will take your case, Ranelagh. God help me to make it good against all odds. End of chapter seven, part one.